Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 139, verses 1 through 18, 23 to 24. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. Uh, my name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. Uh, I want to welcome you to our church in particular if it's your first time. Uh, at the top of every year, uh, we do a sermon series on our DNA, and our DNA consists of three things, our name, our mission, and our vision. And we devote two sermons to each of these three things. And so we've already taken a look at our unique name. And last week we took a look at our mission for the first time. And uh, today we'll take a look at our mission once more. And our mission is printed right here on these two blue banners. Our mission is to inspire thinkers to believe. And our mission is to inspire believers uh, to think. And so wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, uh, whatever questions that you might have, I want you to know that we are here to help you. Okay? And so whether you're a seeker, you consider yourself a skeptic, you might be from another faith, uh, or you're, you're a Christian, or you're my daughter. Uh, in the Chung household, before we eat, uh, we pray together as a family. And not too long ago, I told my oldest daughter, Logan, hey, Logan, let's pray. And my profound uh, three-and-a-half-year-old daughter said, but Daddy, I can't see God. Where is He? And I would like to think that as a pastor, I would have said something very profound like, oh, Logan, don't you know that God is like the wind? Even though you can't see the wind, you can feel the wind, and God is kind of like that. Or maybe something even more profound like, oh, Logan, it's kind of like when you go fishing. When you go fishing, you can't see the fish, 
because they're underneath the water, but you know that they're there because you can feel them tugging on the line, and similarly, you can feel God tugging on your heart. And I wish I'd said something profound like that, but I didn't, uh, mostly because I was just hungry, so I was just like, Logan, God is everywhere, let's just pray and eat. Um, and she just said, okay. <laughs> um, but for uh, a child, that, that is a profound question, isn't it? How do you see something that you can't see? How, how in the world are you supposed to believe in something that you can't see? Well, I want you to imagine for a moment that we all live in this room. And in this room, there are no windows. And these walls are made out of thick iron. And this is the only reality and the only world that we know. And surrounding this thick layer of iron is another layer of concrete and another layer of titanium. Now, how do you get the people in this iron box to see that there is this whole other world that is out there with the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens, people, the mountains, the animals? How do you get the people in this iron box to see that there is this whole other world? Well, you have to lift the lid of the iron box. Well, how do you do that? Well, if you come to Exilic long enough, one of the things that we strive to do is to give you one tool every week, maybe sometimes more, a tool that will help lift the lid of the iron box so that the people in the iron box do not get disenchanted with the world that they live in, but they can be re-enchanted once again. And the tool that I wanna give you this morning, perhaps the most powerful tool in the toolbox is stories. Uh, in his book, After Virtue, uh, Alistair McIntyre says, imagine you're waiting at a bus stop and some stranger comes up to you and they whisper in your ear, Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus is the name of the, uh, is the Latin name of the common wild duck. What would you, what would you say? How would you interpret what just happened? Well, you need a story. And your story could be a sad story, like that person I think is mentally ill. Or the story could be, I think that person is drunk and clearly out of their mind. Or if you're, if you have a wild imagination, you might think that that person is a spy and they're giving you some kind of secret code. And that code is histrionicus. But the point, McIntyre says, is that you need a story to help interpret what just happened, to help interpret reality. Stories like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we need stories. And while Psalm 139 is not a story, it's actually a song. Uh, you know that behind every song there usually is a story. And I'll talk about what that story is at the very end of the sermon. But the composer of this song, uh, as he writes this, uh, sort of divides it into three very clean categories. The first is who God is. The second is who we are. And the third is the nature of our relationship with God. And as we take a look at that, those three things, who God is, who we are, and the nature of our relationship, what I want to do is reinforce those three things with stories. Okay. So who is God? Uh, in his book, The Pursuit of God, uh, A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds 
when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. And so whether we have big thoughts about God, small thoughts about God, or no thoughts about God, what comes into our mind when we think about who God is, is the most important thing about us. Because that shapes our understanding of our identity and consequently, therefore, uh, how we live our lives. So who is God? Well, at the very least in this psalm, he is three things and they all begin with the word omni. He is omniscient, he is omnipresent, and he is omnipotent. And so read with me verses one through four. One through six. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You have me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Take a look at some of the words that are used here in verses one through six. Uh, you have searched me. You know me. You know when I sit. You discern my going out. You are familiar with all my ways. And here what we're seeing is uh, the idea that God is omniscient, the idea that uh, he knows all things. Now, Jean-Paul Sartre was an uh, existentialist philosopher, and uh, he wrote something called... Um, uh, he wrote something called, I'm blanking, Being a Nothingness. And there's a chapter in Being a Nothingness called The Look. And when you read The Look, it's basically the idea that there's this person in a room, and he sees this door, and there's a keyhole. And so he goes and looks in the keyhole, and all of a sudden he sees another room filled with other people. And because he's able to see them, but they can't see him, He's filled with this sense of power uh, that he has over them. And all of a sudden, as he's spying on all these other people in the other room, he hears footsteps in the hallway. And he turns around, and at one point, he thinks that he's the unviewed viewer. But he turns around, and he realizes that he's not the unviewed viewer, that he himself is being watched. And at that moment, at one moment, he had a sense of power. But as soon as he realizes that he is also being watched, all of a sudden that, that power is completely lost because there's another unviewed viewer. And so there's something about a look, there's something about a gaze when someone has on us where we feel like we're, we're naked and exposed. And for Sartre, this is why he couldn't become a Christian. He felt like God was the unviewed viewer that was always over him, watching over him, and he didn't like that idea that someone could have that much power over him. And yet, take a look with me at verse six, as uh, the writer of the song meditates on God's omniscience. Look at the composer's response to God's omniscience. It's not filled with uh, anger or, or animosity, but he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And the reason why the composer here has a completely different reaction from Sartre is because he's meditating on God's omniscience. So think about it this way. There are seven and a half billion people in this world. 360,000 babies are born per day. 
Imagine for a moment that you had to know the names of all the newborns that are born every single day and all the people that are in this world, but you not only had to know everyone's names, you had to know every single detail about every single person. Such a feat would be staggering. And yet God knows not only the world and everyone in the world and the ends of the cosmos, but he knows every single thing about you. Amazing. Some years ago, many years ago in the 80s, there was a game show called The Newlywed Game. It was the second longest running game show on ABC. And what made this game show so humorous is that they would invite all of these newlyweds to the show and they would ask the newlyweds questions about their spouse. So they would say things like, what is your spouse's favorite book? What is your spouse's blood type? What is your spouse's favorite memory as a child? And what made the show so humorous is that here are these two people that are madly in love with one another, and they barely even know each other. They're like stuttering to find the answers. Like, like I don't even know my wife's own blood type. Right? And so here we are, we all love each other, but we barely know one another. We barely even know the people that we love. But you know what's even more humorous than that? We barely even know ourselves. There's a reason why um, we take the Myers-Briggs test, Strength Finders. There's a reason why the Enneagram is so popular today. Why do we take those tests? It's because we want to know more about ourselves. So there's a sense in which we are strangers to ourselves and, and alienated from ourselves. Uh, but because of God's omniscience, there isn't one single thing that God doesn't know about us. For Sartre, God was like Amazon Echo or Google Home always listening and spying in on us so it can give us advertisements. But for David, the writer of this psalm, God wasn't like Amazon Echo or Google Home, always listening and spying over us. Rather, God was more like a baby monitor. You know what new parents do when they have a newborn? They're always looking at the baby monitor, not because they're spying on them, but because they're a loving father a loving mother that is concerned about their well-being uh, and how they are. And similarly, when we think about God's omniscience, he's not spying on us, but he's a loving father that is here for us, watching over us. There's a second thing that we see, though, not only God's omniscience, but we see God's omnipresence. Take a look with me at verses 7 through 9. David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, uh, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And what David is doing here is he is doing a word picture. So take a look at verse 8 again. If I go up to the heavens, what direction is the heavens? It's north. If I make my bed in the depths, where is the depths? It is south. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, where does the sun rise? In the east. If I settle on the far side of the sea, where does David live? In Israel. Where is the sea? It is west. And so what he's drawing here is a word compass, a word picture for us. And what he is saying here is that God is everywhere present. And so in other words, we are not deists. We do not believe that God made the world, spun it on his finger like a basketball, and then distanced and removed himself from the world. Rather, we believe that God is very much present in the world that we live in. 
There was one third grade class where they were having um, bring your father to school day, and all the kids were bragging about their dads. One third grader said, my dad is a doctor, so we're rich, and I have a dirt bike. And another kid says, oh yeah, my dad's a CEO, and we go to Europe every year. And another kid says, well, my dad's a firefighter, so he's a hero because he fights fire. And there was another kid who said, well, my dad, he's not a doctor, he's not a CEO, and he's not a firefighter. But you know, my dad, he's here. You see, for none of the other students, none of their dads showed up. They could have been kings, they could have been presidents, but they weren't there. But for this student, his dad was here. And similarly, you have to know that God is here in your life, even right here uh, in our midst. 500 years ago, during the Protestant Reformation, one of the hottest debates during the Reformation was regarding God's presence in the Lord's Supper. And so there were all these debates. Is he literally the bread and the wine? Is he around it, in it, under it? Is it symbolic? How is God presence? One of the hottest debates during the Protestant Reformation. Today, I mean, no one really debates about those things anymore. But I do believe that we do need a modern reformation. And the question does need to be flipped. And the question should not be, how is God present? But I believe that today, the reformation that we need is this. How are we present with God? We live in an age and in a culture of distraction. As Marshall McLuhan would say, we are constantly amusing ourselves to death. Even when we're present, we're not really present. We're constantly being distracted. And so I think that that is a far more profound question for us today. How much, how much attention do you pay to your attention? Do you even know what you're singing? Do you know what you're saying when you're praying? Can you feel the chair that you are sitting on right now? How present are you? And it seems to me that that is the question that we need to ask ourselves today. I think my favorite Latin phrase is the phrase coram deo, and coram deo simply means in the presence of God. And the reason why that phrase coram deo is so important to me is because I suck at it. I, I don't remember that God is present with me. But the reason why I try to stamp that phrase into my mind every single day is because how much holier would my life be if I honestly believed that God, God, I was living under the presence of God? How different would my speech be if I honestly believed that God was present? How, how much radically would it alter what I watch on television if I really believed that God was next to me? How much would it change my thoughts if I knew that God was right here next to me? It would radically change the way that I live, and I want you to know that he is here, and he is present in all of our lives. There's a third omni that we see, though, and it's in verses 13 and 16, and it is the word omnipresent. Let me read that for us. For you created my inmost being. Uh, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. I was woven together in the depths of the sea. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. 
And I want you to contrast God's omnipotence and his power here in the sense that he made us with uh, a paleontologist from Harvard uh, on the first page of your bulletin uh, in an article that he wrote called The Meaning of Life many, many years ago. Uh, Stephen J. Gould. And Gould says, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because comets struck the earth and wiped out dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance not otherwise available. So thank your lucky stars in a literal sense. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. Because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. And yet what this psalm is saying is that we are not sophisticated baboons. We are not grown-up germs, but we are made in the image of God. We are not made by accident. We did not win the roll of the dice or the cosmic lottery, but God intentionally and powerfully made us in his image. And the reason why that's very, very important, God's omnipotence in terms of creating us, is because that has profound ramifications on who we think we are. And our identity shapes the way that we live our lives. Uh, Trevin Wax, uh, also on the first page of your bulletin, he says, when defining expressive individualism, it might be best to start with the slogans behind the movement. You be you, be true to yourself, follow your heart, find yourself, the first and greatest commandments for this way of life. Expressive individualism poses a challenge because the human tendency is to look inward when God's word says to look upward. We resist the upward look because it implies that someone or something is above us and that someone might have authority. Informed by Western assumptions about freedom and happiness, we chafe against claims of moral authority over us or institutions that ask something from us. We resist anything that might stifle our self-defined freedom. And when Wax uses the phrase uh, expressive individualism on the first line of the, uh, the quote, uh, who he's referencing is the sociologist Robert Bella. And the way that Robert Bella defines expressive individualism is this. No one, not even God, has the right to determine who I am. No one has the right to determine who I am. I define it myself. And so there is this resistance against outside authority and a celebration of the autonomous self. Uh, Yuval Levin also in your bulletin in his uh, book, The Fractal Republic, says that term expressive individualism suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. It is a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in society by fully asserting who you are. The capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty and our basic rights. And it is given pride of place in terms of our self-understanding. Now I want you to know that there are some good things about expressive individualism. There are some good things that have come out of it, but there are also a lot of negative things that have come out of been birthed out of uh, expressive individualism as one. I'll give you one example of this. Years ago, there was a movie that came out called Unknown. 
and I'm assuming it's basically unknown to all of you because it's not that good, but I did watch it. Um, and in the movie Unknown, uh, there's a group of men that wake up in a chemical warehouse with total amnesia. They have no recollection of how they ended up in this chemical warehouse. All they know is that they're there and there's no way out. And so these men are looking for clues inside the warehouse as to who they are and how they may have gotten there. And one of the men stumbles upon a clue and he, he realizes that two of them are cops and the rest of them are criminals. But no one knows who is who. And as they're scrambling to find their identity, they get a call from the other criminals saying, are the cops still with you? Are they still kidnapped? And they sort of play along and they say, yes. And so the other criminals on the other line say, okay, we're on our way. So they hang up their phone and they're all frantic and anxious because they don't know who are the criminals and who are the cops. And finally, one of them says, well, how am I supposed to know how to act if I don't even know who I am? Do I act like a cop or do I act like a criminal? How am I supposed to know how to act if I don't know who I am? And that's right. Here's what they didn't do. They didn't look deep inside of them to say, okay, am I, do I think I'm a cop or do I think I'm a criminal? Instead, they were looking outside for evidence, outside for support in terms uh, of who uh, they were. And, and the point is that we can't only look inward. We also have to look outward in terms of understanding who we are. And, when we read this psalm, what it's basically saying is this, there is no knowledge of self apart from a knowledge of God. When we detach and unmoor ourselves from who God is, which is basically everyone in our city, we are left scrambling, searching for our identity. And typically the way that we scramble to look for identity is not by looking outside, but we look to our feelings and our desires to interpret who we think we are. So here's the question. Why attach, why connect ourselves to God as a basis of forming our identity? Well, I wanna come back to Sartre one more time. And uh, he wrote a series of uh, lectures uh, when he was alive called Existentialism is a Humanism. And in one of the lectures, uh, he uses an example of a pen knife. I'm, so I'm gonna contemporize this example because none of us use pen knives anymore. But it was that thing to open up envelopes. So let's just, let me contemporize it and say, let's say we're all inventors and we make a smartphone, a super, super smartphone with artificial intelligence and everything. And so we say to the smartphone, hey, can you uh, send a text to so-and-so? And the smartphone says no. And we say, this is why I made you uh, send the text. And uh, the smartphone says, no, I don't wanna send texts anymore. I want to be the eighth member of BTS. <laughs> and so you go, what? How, how can you become the eighth member of BTS? That's not why I made you, nor is it how I made you. You were made for this. You were not made for that. And similarly, the reason why God made us and the reason why how he made us is to be in a loving relationship with him, in a meaningful relationship with him. I have two girls, Logan and Aiden, kind of made them. That means that I need to have a meaningful relationship with them, and they should have a meaningful relationship with me. 
And it is no different with God. But that is not the only reason why we should have a meaningful relationship with God. We shouldn't only have a meaningful relationship with him because we're his creation, but we should also have a meaningful relationship, a loving relationship with God because he is our salvation. And if you take a look with me at verses 23 and 24, at the very end of the psalm, it says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I know that uh, a good number of you probably journal every day. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've been journaling for the past five to 10 years every single day and then all of a sudden you lose it and someone else finds it. And they begin reading voraciously every single page of your journal. How would you feel? Probably violated, angry, naked, maybe even a little bit ashamed. Now let's say that as the person is reading your journal and reading about not only your accomplishments, but your stupid, stupid failures and your wicked tendencies and your faults, because that's what we do when we journal, we overshare. They're reading, about, they're reading it, and as they're reading it, in the midst of your blemishes, they begin to fall in love with you. Now, how would you, how would you feel? Probably not as angry. There's a part of you that might even feel flattered. Why? Because it's deeply human to want to be known. But there's a tension, because if we're fully known, will we be accepted and really loved? I mean, that's the tension, isn't it? So what do we do? We control how, how much people know about us via social media, in our conversations, in life group. We control how much people know about us because we don't want to tell them everything because we're, we're afraid of being rejected. Tim Keller says uh, in his book, Meaning of Marriage, he says, to be loved but not known, it's nice. I mean, you're still loved, but it's not very comforting. It's still superficial. And to be known but not loved, that's our deepest fear, to be rejected and not accepted. But to be fully known and to be fully loved, well, that is a lot like being loved by God. And that is something that every single one of us in this room wants. David says, search, see if there is any offensive way in me. And the reason why God fully knows us and yet fully loves us and accepts us in the midst of all of our offenses is because on the cross, Jesus takes all of our offenses upon himself and he gives to us all of his righteousness. And he becomes a curse so that we can have everlasting life. On the first page of your bulletin once more, uh, and the last quote, I like the way that Scott Sauls describes this. And he says, if you're trusting Jesus, then you are fully known and yet fully loved, completely exposed and yet not rejected, temporally broken and yet eternally significant, small in comparison to the creation and yet magnificent uh, in the creator's eyes. And when you realize that, that that is how God looks at you and the nature of your relationship with God, 
such a relationship should cause us to praise. Such a, such a, such a revelation of the nature of this relationship could, should cause us to adore. And I like the way that one person put it when he says that, you know what wonder is? Wonder is involuntary praise. You can't help but do it because of how wonderful the other thing is. No one stands foot at the precipice of the Grand Canyon and says, I'm awesome. <laughs> Typically, when you're standing at the precipice of the Grand Canyon, you're saying, I mean, your mouth is ajar because you're wonderstruck. It's involuntary praise. You can't help but praise the Grand Canyon for what it is. It just comes out of you. It's involuntary, not voluntary. As we take a look at the writer here, David, this is wonder. It is involuntary praise. There are 150 Psalms in the Psalter. Yet King David wrote 73 of them, almost half of the Psalms. This is a man that is wonderstruck by who God is, uh, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence in his life. And it's because of this awareness and awesomeness of who God is that he praises. And I want you to know that because we are made in God's image, that you yourself are wonderful and amazing in your own right in light of who you are now in Christ. And I'll close with this final story. There was a farmer that found an abandoned eagle's egg, and so he brought it back with him to his farm. And he placed the eagle's egg with all of the other eggs uh, in the chicken hatch. And so finally the eagle hatch came out of the egg, and, and so because the eagle is surrounded by all of these chickens, it thinks that it's a chicken. So it pecks around like all the other chickens, it eats worms, and it only flies three feet at a time like all the other chickens. And then one day, the eagle looks up into the heavens and he sees an, another eagle majestically flying and soaring through the air. And the eagle on the ground says, whoa, what is that? And so the chicken goes, those are eagles. They're, they're birds of the sky and birds of the heavens, but we're chickens. We're birds of the ground and birds of the land. But as the eagle was staring up at the other eagle, there was this longing that came out of him, this, this desire that came out of him that, that, that the worms couldn't satisfy, that hopping around three feet just couldn't satisfy, that pecking around couldn't satisfy. And similarly, I would say that you were meant to soar. But oftentimes we live under the guise of a false identity. But the only way for you to realize and to soar the way that you really are as a child of God is to look up at the heavens at who you really are, at a God who made you. You are not a cosmic accident. You are here for a reason. You are made in the image of God and you are sinner saved by grace. Our culture says you define who you are. And you know what scripture says? Scripture says define yourself by who you are in light of who God is. And there's a huge radical difference. Well, yesterday I uh, came back to my daughter again. And I said, Logan, so where do you think God is since you can't see him? And she smiled at me and she said, Daddy, he's in my heart. And I was a very proud father at that moment. <laughs> And I want you to know the same. 
Uh, he is not only in you, he is beside you, he goes before you, he is behind you, and he is above you, guiding your every step. You were meant to soar, but the only way you can soar in this life is by realizing that you are a child of God, a sinner saved by grace. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. Uh, we thank you for who we are, um, that we do have intrinsic worth because we are made in the image of an amazing God. Help us never to forget that. Uh, oftentimes there are so many things that commit identity theft and hijack uh, who we are, but help us to always live in the light of your presence and what you have done for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.